Hello, hello, and welcome back to the Love Doctor podcast, research-informed advice that can lubricate any conversation about sex. My name is Dr. Leah Tidy, and I'm glad to have you here. Today on the show, we're doing things a little different. I share my interview with sex educator Cassandra Corrado, and we talk about the assumptions that people make about you when you're a sex educator, like you're always down for sex or have experienced every type of sex that we teach about. We also answer the many questions that I've received from listeners about sex after trauma and sexual assault. It's a difficult topic and one that is really important for us to discuss, but it's also really important for you to take care of yourself and make sure that you are in a good space as we move into this conversation. But first, today in sex. Welcome to Dick School. Here, you'll find ways to express your emotions in unhealthy ways. Be called a bitch if you talk about your feelings, rely on women for your emotional support while simultaneously disregarding their feelings, and be placed into one of four categories. Jocks, bros, fags, and pussies. Now, these are all direct phrases, chapter titles, and ideas that are in Peggy Orenstein's book, Boys and Sex. Peggy is a journalist who, over the course of two years, interviewed young men and male-identifying folks across the U.S. about sex, masculinity, social expectations, and intimacy. Now, I read Peggy's excellent book, Girls and Sex, last year, and was so excited to read Boys and Sex when it came out. But then I actually read it, and really had no idea what to do with myself. As Peggy tells us, Americans talk precious little to their daughters about sex, but I'd soon learn that they talk even less to their sons. And that is alarming, while also not surprising at all. I'm going to be honest, I had to take breaks when I was reading Boys and Sex because it was highlighting just how broken our society is at talking to youth in general about sex and boundaries. And as an educator, I was pissed because we are setting up our youth to have these unfulfilling and unsafe sexual experiences. And our ideas around masculinity are so narrow, and I've created these toxic environments where young men feel like they can't express their feelings and have to prove themselves through sexual conquests. Now, I'm going to share a brief clip from Good Morning America, where reporter Deborah Roberts talks to Peggy Ornstein about her book, and we get some insight from young men as well. In this world of Me Too and Time's Up, there's a lot of talk about girls and women and learning how to own their space. But what about boys? The author of a new book says, while we are, we think we're talking with them, we are neglecting them in the conversation, leaving them entrenched in old stereotypes about manhood. All the popular culture, the way when you start looking at it, that it presents masculinity and manhood and sex for men is incredibly narrow. Author Peggy Orenstein has spent years talking with young people about their intimate lives. In her new book, Boys and Sex, she's now sounding an alarm about young men. It was like they were um, channeling 1955. You know, it was still about uh, sexual conquest. It was about dominance. It was about aggression, athleticism, and particularly about emotional suppression. You feel need to be tough? Yeah, I mean, just so that, like, you know, you can show people that, like, you're not, I guess, someone to mess with. We gathered together a few guys, ages 17 to 22, who admit they're getting mixed signals about how to be a man. If you're not successful, if you don't have money, if you don't, you won't be able to get, like, um, the pretty girl or something like that. And even though we want to get away from it, it's just something that 
It's been entrenched in our society for so long. In fact, Ornstein says it's the bro culture that leads many boys to go along even when they feel other guys are being inappropriate. There is a lot of pressure on guys to be silent. And one guy said to me he did try to step up and he got mocked by other guys. And I've been in situations like that, but say I'm in a locker room with my teammates, it's like a bond there. And with all the talk about how to treat women in this world of Me Too, many boys say the discussions in their world are short on details. Be respectful to women. Is that really giving you any information about how to be a young man, what to do? No, it doesn't. And there's a lot that you actually have to learn about in terms of being respectful, you know, you're respectful for like what they do or how they feel. One major issue plaguing boys, Orenstein says, is the lack of discussion regarding sex. Parents are squeamish and rarely talk about caring and intimate relationships. Well, what about boys and intimacy? Do they want intimacy? They do want to connect and they are as emotionally invested in their relationships. We have to talk to our boys. They wanted to hear more from their fathers about their own experience, about even their regret. In a way, like, try to be their friend. Don't chastise them, rather instead relate with them. Because you yourself were probably in that same position when you were their age. These young men tell us that they think that the world is changing, but George, really not so much. The number of sexual assaults against women on college campuses hasn't changed at all in the last four years. So privately, there is still this world out there that is not budging. And we need a lot more conversations like the one you had. That's exactly right. Talk to your boys in the car. Then they can't escape. But really talk about those uncomfortable things that, you know, that you know that they're exposed to. And exactly as Deborah and Peggy say, we have to talk to the boys, men, and male-identifying folks in our lives about sex. And even more about intimacy, about relationships, our emotions, and consent. This is why I am honored to share my interview with Cassandra Corrado, because we need to be having these conversations. Cassandra is a trauma-informed and pleasure-positive sex educator who is dedicated to working with adults to unlearn sexual shame and to heal our relationships with sex. And as you'll hear in my interview with Cassandra, you have the power to stop, take stock, take a deep breath, and do what you need to do to look after yourself during this episode. This is an important conversation that we need to be having, so I encourage you to listen, but your own self-care is more important. I don't have trigger warnings on this podcast normally, but I want you to know that there may be things that are triggering or hard to hear. We're specifically talking about drug-induced sexual assault, we talk about our personal experiences with trauma, and strategies to take back your power and pleasure. As always, I leave you with a ton of resources, and I cannot recommend it enough that you check them out. They'll be in the episode description, or you can also find them anytime on my website at www.leatidy.com. Good morning, Cassandra. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. How are you doing? I'm good. Actually, yeah, really good. Like there's no more construction happening outside of my apartment anymore. So I can actually record like not on Saturday mornings. So I'm I'm feeling like really into it. And like the train tracks, there's no trees being removed next to your house. No, not anymore. So um, for folks who are listening, there were trees being removed from my house the first time we went to record this episode. And I didn't ask for these trees to be removed or more accurately, I did, but I asked for them to be removed about a year ago, and I just heard radio silence. 
And then the train company came in with this like giant digger machine and just fully ripped the trees out of the ground. It was incredibly loud, but it's not happening today. It is all peaceful on the train tracks right now. So I think we're going to be good. I think it's going to be good. It's going to be perfect. If there's some like ambient noise, that's fine, but it won't be like trees being, I know you messaged me. You're like, I'm so sorry. I'm like, that's so out of your control. That's so, <laughs> like, you can't apologize for that. Like you weren't like, today's the day trees. It's over. <laughs> I know. Well, and that's very much who I am as a person where, you know, like a hurricane could have been coming and I would have been like, I'm really sorry. I should have anticipated this hurricane better. And that was my bad on the scheduling. <laughs> Which is a conversation I actually had to have with people last week because we had a hurricane coming last week. So uh, it's it's a personality trait that I'm working on. <laughs> right? It's, it's definitely um, – it aligns with the Canadian stereotype, I'm not going to lie, of like, I'm so sorry. It's the polite Canadians. But I mean, it's super problematic in that, but definitely something that I also need to work on. I'm like, why am I apologizing for this thing that's completely <laughs> not my fault? Yeah, well, and I live in Florida, too. So for me, it goes against everything that people think about Floridians, where they're just like, you're pure chaos, and you don't care at all about what people do. And and meanwhile, I'm in my office like, I'm really sorry if I'm causing a disturbance for some people. And meanwhile, there's like a lawnmower that's been mowing grass for six days consecutively outside, and I'm unbothered by that. So, you know. We all have our lot in life and we deal with it. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> Excellent. So why don't you tell me um, a little bit about yourself? And of course, I'm going to share like links and resources to your website and also your Instagram. Oh, there's so much good information on there. Uh, but yeah, a little bit about yourself and, and your journey on becoming a sexual health educator. Yeah, so I am a sex educator who works exclusively with college students and other adults. So I know a lot of folks think sex ed and they think like K-12 sex ed, the sex ed you might get in high school or in secondary school. And that's not what I do. I work with seniors in high school every once in a while for like very select groups of, of students. And those events even are always as graduation events. So they're to help prepare students to move on to college. But my primary focus is helping adults unlearn the bad education that they got when they were younger. So here in the States, education is on a like state-by-state state and then even district-by-district district mandate. And so you could move 10 minutes away and be in a completely different sex ed curricula if you are in a different school district. So we get people who, whether they go to college or not, leave school usually with a lot of misinformation and feeling really confused about their bodies, about relationships, and about sex and sexuality in general. So I love working with college students because they always have so many questions. They're so open to it. And I also work with adults pretty much through age 50 who are wanting to focus on very specific issues for themselves. So I do online events that are open to folks all around the world, but I also do one-on-one -on -one coaching um, and consultations for people who have specific questions that are unique to them that they want to dive into and work on a little bit more. So it's, you know, equal parts working with college students and doing events all around the country and then also doing the the work that's focused on people who aren't in college who are also still adults. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I really I, I love that focus that you have on 
the unlearning, right? I think that's something that I've mentioned on this podcast before. Like that's as important as the learning itself. And, and it's so interesting too, like kind of very early on, you know, me starting my own sex ed career, like quite often, I'm so used to working with adults, either like, like older adults, seniors, but again, folks in university and people are like, oh, like, do you teach at high schools? I'm like, I mean, sometimes if they force me to, um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like I see the real need there, but I think it's so important to have those conversations, especially when there isn't that kind of parental influence there anymore. And so you can maybe like meet people more so where they're at. Um, and I just finished reading uh, Boys and Sex by Peggy Orenstein and just have, I mean, it's based in the, in the US and just made me really think about, I mean, there's so much overlap for what's happening here in Canada as well for how we're socialized, but how important it is that folks like you are on campuses and meeting students where they're at. To be like, we can have really fun conversations about sex. Like you look at the titles of some of your workshops and it's like, how would I not want to go to one about like sex toys? How, how, how would I not want to go to this and learn more about my body and how that works? So how did you, how did you end up kind of like niching and figuring out that you wanted to work with adults and like college students in particular? So for me, it never even was a question of doing that earlier education or working with adults. I only ever wanted to work with college students and older adults. I um, I know that a strength of mine is connecting with people in that age bracket, you know, particularly in that 18 to 30 age bracket. And uh, for me, I am very blunt. Um, I'm not somebody who is strong with the filters. Uh, and I, I frankly, I curse a lot, right? Like I am not somebody who is designed to go into, you know, a seventh grade classroom and have the people supervising that school be thrilled about it. So for me, a lot of that decision really came from having autonomy in the ways that I communicated with students. And because I'm self-employed, I'm setting my own curricula. Schools come to me and say, hey, I want you to teach this Sex Toys 101 workshop. I want you to teach this For Pleasure's Sake workshop or Sex and Translation workshop. So they're looking at my work and saying, this is the specific thing that we want. We trust you to come fulfill that lesson plan, as opposed to going into a school and maybe having to stick with like a district mandated curriculum. Because for me, being able to be responsive and engaging with students and really having the opportunity to design curricula entirely based around the things people are asking me most often was the thing that I was interested in the most. And at the same time, when I was in college, I had done a lot of work in survivor advocacy. I had um, trained as a victim advocate and worked as a victim advocate. And I was doing specifically hospital-based victim advocacy. So uh, there was a huge part of my work that was overlapping with mostly adult survivors of sexual violence and of interpersonal violence. So the being able to communicate with adult survivors and being able to do adult sex education, those two plants really started to entwine together and grow together. Now I get to have those conversations that are a little bit deeper about relationships, about consent, about trauma, and also about pleasure, about orgasms, about queerness, about toys, about porn, in really just a deeper way than I would have been able to if I had been exclusively working with younger students. So 
to me, working with adults is a gift. And the fact that people are always opting into my workshops as opposed to being required to attend them is really amazing because it means that people are showing up saying, I want to learn about this thing. I'm acknowledging I'm having a struggle in this area and I'm really open to learning, which is also just, you know, as an educator, a really big difference for being in the classroom when you're there with students who are required to be there. Sometimes they don't really want to be there. They're not ready to be there. And so that makes it a lot harder to deliver information in a way that people are going to be open to. Whereas when people are opting in, they're already open to it to a sense, right? Not not always entirely. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, you know, that's the, I hadn't thought about that in terms of like the opting in is such a big part of that learning experience for people. And then even in my brief experience of working with younger folks, you know, if I'm teaching in a grade seven class, well, half of them are kids and half of them are teenagers. And so how do I meet them where they're at being like, oh, we need to talk about puberty, but also this group, we really need to talk about contraception. And for all of them, let's talk about healthy relationships. But like you said, that autonomy piece of being able to work with adults and having them choose to, majority of the time, to learn from you and to engage in these topics. What a wonderful experience um, and atmosphere to be in as an educator, right? By people who are excited that you're there um, and not like, oh my gosh, like, they brought in the sex ed lady who now like I am mortified because that's definitely been some of my experience. So what, one of the, the things that I wanted to ask you too is, you know, what are the things that you think we've been taught about sexuality that we need to unlearn? Like, I know that's a huge question, but probably, I know you, you get like anonymous questions all the time for people. Like, what do you find yourself repeating again and again? You're like, oh, we need to stop thinking this about sexuality. So, oh my God, there are so many. <laughs> there are so many. So last night, I, um, I'm i teaching right now this program called Sex Ed Summer School. That's for adults and it's 10 weeks and each week is a different topic. Last night's topic was masturbation and self-pleasure. And at the beginning, I almost always open my workshops by saying, what are things you have learned or that you've picked up about this topic up until now? You know, what are things you were taught to believe regardless of if you currently believe them? And one of them that kept coming up over and over was that masturbation is only for boys or for men, that if you are engaging with sexuality and you're not a boy or a man, it's just going to hurt or not be pleasurable. Then this thing that comes up a lot with my coaching clients, which is that if you are queer and if you have a vulva, then you don't have a need to use contraception or you don't have a need to use STI prevention tools because you theoretically can't get an STI or you can't get pregnant. And those things you know, aren't based in reality entirely. Uh, some of them have some grounding in reality and they've just been distorted down the line. But the other thing that I hear a lot, and I think this is specific to the fact that I work so much with survivors, but so many people having been taught that if they've experienced trauma, that they don't have worth as a sexual person or that they don't have autonomy in sexual situations. And that basically once you've experienced trauma, it's just going to suck forever and you're not going to be able to deal with things. And part of that is because many therapists aren't trained in sexuality issues and don't have advanced training in trauma. And even victim advocates don't have a lot of training in sexuality related issues. So we've got this really big information gap that leads people feeling like I'm just going to be stuck like this forever. There is no hope um, and I can never improve the situation. 
which points to, I think, the biggest core thing of all, which is once you start having sex, there's nothing new to learn because you're doing it. And that is just fundamentally flat out inaccurate. And it's why I work with folks, you know, all over the age span up until age 50, because there's absolutely still stuff to learn. If you didn't learn the stuff earlier, you still need to learn it now. And you may have been given some pretty messed up information or the ways that your brain may have started engaging with sexuality could have been in a really unhealthy way. And so we have to believe that as we get older, you can teach the old dog new tricks. You can learn how to process things in different ways and that you can still be compassionately curious about yourself because many of us are just like, once I get to a certain age, I'm done. I don't like have to be clumsy anymore you know, be clumsy at 40, learn a new thing at 40. Um, and so that's, that's really the core of all of it is that, you know, the idea that we're stuck with whatever we picked up as preteens and as teenagers, um, it's just, it's false. And it's, it's a huge thing that needs to be unlearned if we're going to be trying to build compassionate and empathetic relationships with ourselves and with other people. I think so often when we enter into a sexual relationship, say if it's a new sexual relationship, but we've already had sex before, we're like, oh, let's do the exact same thing that worked the other time without taking into account entirely different context, entirely different partner. You're also hopefully a different person than when you were a teenager or whenever it was that maybe you had your first sexual experience. And so really trying to lean into that lifelong learning around sex or I'm sure this has also come up in terms of like your own sexual expression of like people make the assumption because you're a sexual health educator they're like well you must have like perfect exquisite sex all the time and you're like you just know everything you're like how could I possibly know everything about that like is that kind of an assumption that some people come to like I think some people have a hard time with boundaries with sex educators, but also like, yeah, what are those assumptions that you've had about without actually, you don't have to share your personal experience, but. Oh, no, that's, this is something my partner and I talk about all the time. So I've, I've been with my wife for about six years now and I've, I've known her since college. And so she's kind of been with me through this whole journey, even when we weren't together. And even, you know, engaging sometimes with her family members or people who we've just met, the gut instinct is to really make assumptions about the type of sex life that I have personally and that my partner and I share together. And, uh, uh, you know, one of the things that really comes up is that I'm often teaching about topics where I am providing information and people must assume that I do this particular thing all the time. And the reality is I don't actually, but I have a lot of information about it. I, you know, I work with plenty of people who engage in this particular type of sex act. And uh, it's always really funny to me for people to say, oh, uh, you know, you're probably having sex every single day or, you know, you're like obsessed with sex. And I'm just like, no, actually, you know, one of the biggest conflicts in my relationship is figuring out between my my schedule and my partner's schedule when we are going to be in a context where we're going to want to have sex, right? Like, but because I'm a sex educator, we have the conversation, we have the ability to be able to navigate those conversations much more comfortably, I think, than than other folks do, right? But there is certainly an assumption that like everything is on the table and that I'm just going to be down for sex whenever. And 
No, <laughs> right? I still have boundaries. I'm like, I'm still a person. I still have my own trauma that I work through and that is going to be presenting itself to me sometimes. And there, there is always that conversation about what you are open to and what you're not open to and what is on the table and what you're curious about, but you're not like totally positive is on the table yet. So yeah, it's like I'm I'm a normal person engaging with sex. I just happen to have this bigger bank of information that takes the more curious approach to things than maybe most of us have been led to to have our normal kind of sexual conversations be tinged with. So yeah, there are the assumptions abound, really, and pretty much all of them are inaccurate. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. Just like all of our the things that the myths and things that we've learned when we were teenagers, same sort of thing about sexual health educators. Because I know when you know, the sexual educator came into my school, I think we had like, again, one session with them. I was like, and I was a kid who always had so many questions and was so curious and was like, why did you leave? There's so much more I need to ask you. But right, like you make those uh, assumptions about that person about being like, oh, my gosh, like, they they must be like always down or have done all of these things that they ever talk about. And so I find sometimes that I have to deal with some of my own – understandably, I have to deal with my own like sexual shame and then trying to make sure that I don't project any of that as someone who's educating. And I'm like, and it doesn't mean that everything I'm talking about is something that I have personal experience with, but I've literally done the training, as lots of sexual educators have, to understand your boundaries and to not try and like – project those biases about certain sexual acts, which I mean, how wonderful if we all had that, that training, right, of doing some sort of sexual assessment workshop, looking at our attitudes and things like that. Yeah, I tell people all the time, because especially my coaching clients will in particular approach something and be like, you're gonna think this is super weird. And I have to say, I'm probably not, you know, like I First of all, my weirdness threshold is really, really high. It's much higher than the average person's. But also, I don't think people realize that as sex educators, there is advanced and specific training. And so it's not just about, okay, I need to know which forms of birth control do what and how they work. It's actually about managing those attitudes and the way that we engage with people and the way that we engage with certain topics. Because we might have deep personal feelings about a topic. It doesn't matter. We still have to be able to teach about it in an unbiased way. Um, and so I think, you know, the sexuality attitude reassessments that we have to do for certification and that are so critical to sex education really as a field and, and to sex therapy as a field as well are absolutely life-changing experiences. And if I think about my work as an educator, the most clear point that I can see of when everything started to shift for me was when I was an intern at an organization called, at the time, the Center for Sexual Pleasure and Health. Now it's called SHIP. But I was an intern and I had the ability to do a SAR totally for free. So do a sexuality attitude reassessment for free. And that was my second year of college. And so for me, everything shifted then. And that was really when I started to take a much closer look at the ways that I was engaging with topics. Because up until that point, I wouldn't say that I was the most compassionate and curious person that I could be. But after that point is when I really started opening myself up to new ideas, to understanding what my biases were, what my 
personal gut reactions were and how I could filter out some of those things when I was in an educational space. So, you know, there's advanced training there that's not just about the health components. It's also about the content delivery. It's also about managing our own feelings and making sure that we have support there. Absolutely. I feel like that is so well said too. And I think quite often that's that piece is missing when we talk to sex educators or recognize the the work that that many of us do to be able to get to to where we're at to have these conversations openly. Because I think that's the the thing that quite often like, oh, like you talk so openly about these topics. I'm like, I oh, I did that didn't just emerge. That was a lot of work <laughs> to get there. And and same same for you, right? Like it's it is quite a, a journey. And I think for me, the area and why I really wanted to to reach out to you and your own expertise, um, and knowing that this is a journey that that I am, am learning about from going through my own SAR and my own personal experience, is that when it when it comes to sexual trauma, that is something that I don't feel as comfortable facilitating. I think because again, relatively early on in my career, but I also definitely have to deal with some of my own like past traumas. And I've had a lot of listeners send me in their questions about that. And so just trying to navigate that space and knowing that I wanted to have someone with your experience to be able to have this conversation. So you have some amazing resources about having healthy sex after trauma, but maybe let's start with like the sexual trauma itself. Like how do we define that and how does that kind of impact ourselves and also our intimate relationships? Yeah. So the way that I define sexual trauma is any type of trauma that has had a sexual side effect for you. So for many of us, we think of sexual trauma as being at the most narrow, exclusively sexual assault, and then at a slightly broader umbrella, including things like um, like street harassment, for example, and workplace harassment. All of those things absolutely are sexual trauma. And also, if you have given birth and had that be a traumatic experience, that could be sexual trauma. If you got into a car accident and have limited below-the-waist mobility, that could be sexually traumatic for you. And so we have to broaden the definition of what includes trauma that has sexual side effects. But when I'm teaching specifically about sexual trauma, I'm thinking primarily about um, about sexual assault, about intimate partner violence, and about things like street harassment and pervasive emotional abuse, financial abuse that could have sexual side effects as well. And that's just because that's where the bulk of people's experiences are. But when I teach about it, I always make sure to talk about the fact that, you know, we're talking about disability. We are talking about body size. We are talking about birth. There are so many different things that can be traumatic and have sexual side effects beyond just the things that we tend to think of or associate with the Me Too movement, for example. And ultimately, something traumatic is something that has a a deep and lasting basically series of side effects that creates a, a sense of fear or distrust in your brain. And so it's something that's going to have that really deep impact on you and usually is going to cause you to have some type of behavioral shift or processing shift in some way. So that might mean again, stereotypically, having things like flashbacks, which some people have flashbacks, but not everybody does. That could also include things like changing the route where you walk home because walking past a certain area um, elevates your blood pressure, is going to elevate your heart rate, is going to bring you back to that moment of fear. Um, We could also be thinking about the ways that people are 
feeling present or feeling absent from their bodies and from sensations. So there are a lot of different markers here. And as an educator, it's never my job to identify something as traumatic um, to my students, right? It's always about how are you engaging with this? What is the struggle point for you? And what is the point of growth that you're looking to move towards or move through? Because, you know, as, as an educator, I can't diagnose people with PTSD, right? But I can say after trauma, here are some things that happen to your brain. If you feel like you're aligning yourself with those things, it's probably worth examining if that situation is something that you would identify as a trauma. How would you label it for yourself? Because that's also a key a key factor. Mm-hmm. I think that's such an encompassing outline of that as well. And I think so often there's kind of two main things I want to pick up on there. And the first is that Sometimes people are said, well, at least it wasn't this that happened. You're like, oh, I was up, somebody harassed me on the street or I got, you know, groped when I was at the club, but you know, at least it wasn't this thing. And so I find that's so hard because you're trying to, um, in some ways, it's presenting itself as like a coping mechanism for people. And how do we actually support, uh, survivors, but also so, like create, people who can actually be supportive and to not minimize people's experiences. Cause it's not uh, a weighted list of, you know, you get this many points because this terrible thing happened to you. How, how has that kind of presented itself in your work when you're, when you're doing um, these certain workshops, like about uh, trauma and about pleasurable and healthy sex afterwards and building that? It usually comes up in the form of anonymous questions and the way that people phrase them. So, I can almost, I can tell off the bat when I read a question, the thing that is getting stuck in people's heads or the ways that they are trying to kind of buffer the thing that they're really asking. And the ways that people will often start it is my experience, my experiences weren't X, Y, Z, but I'm still having a really hard time. Or this thing that happened to me happened 12 years ago, but I'm still having a really hard time. And then you know, go through the rest of the question. And it basically boils down to, is that okay? And people have this idea that, you know, the only things that are valid are things that basically send you to the hospital. And no, no, there's so, so much more that can cause trauma and that can have that long lasting effect on our sense of self, on the ways that we process information, um, on our nervous system. And uh, I was in a training once when I was in college, and it was the first time I'd ever been introduced to basically what is like a sexual violence scale, where people say, on this side of the spectrum, on the lowest side of the spectrum is this thing, and on the highest side of the spectrum is this thing. And while there is value in saying like all of these things are on the spectrum, it actually does reinforce that idea of trauma ranking. And ultimately... I do not adhere to a scale like that because the effect that a particular incident has on somebody is going to depend on the way that they processed it and the way that they were able to access resources during and after that situation, the things that they were taught about bodies and autonomy and violence leading up to that situation. There are so many factors that basically are going to impact how much of an effect a traumatic situation has had for somebody. 
So someone who experiences pervasive workplace harassment that is escalating to threats, they could experience the exact same PTSD side effects as somebody who was sexually assaulted by someone they know. And there is no ranking those experiences, right? Ultimately, you're being made to feel unsafe in your body, whether it's the anticipation of I'm going to be harmed or the awareness of I was harmed. And both of those things can create PTSD side effects in the brain and can lead us to having those those reactions that we associate with PTSD. And so I am very much not team trauma ranking. I am team, if you're having a struggle, it's worth dealing with. If you are saying, I'm having a hard time with this thing, you don't respond to yourself by saying, well, it could have been worse, so suck it up and deal with it. You hopefully wouldn't say that to a friend who was going through something. And you wouldn't want to say that to yourself because basically what you're saying is, I hear that you're having a hard time, but get over it and you need to get back on it. And nobody has ever heard, get over it and get back to it. And then just been like, you're right, my bad. That That isn't how it works. What I do notice as a really big shift, especially with my coaching clients and even with students who ask anonymous questions, is that when they hear that they're allowed to be having a hard time, it reduces the burden on them, making it easier to start processing and seeking resources to continue on that recovery journey. And so when we actually acknowledge that there is a struggle happening, that something harmful has happened, we open up the possibilities to be able to seek help, to seek supportive services instead of trying to shove our trauma down further. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so important that, that like you said, that access to resources and knowing that as soon as that shift in language happens, being like, yeah, not that to say that it's it's okay, but like, yeah, you're experiencing trauma right now and you are dealing with that in multiple ways and that's valid. That that what you what you were feeling is absolutely valid. And I think sometimes especially in terms of context, there are other ways that we try and minimize. You know, and even in my own past of sexual trauma, I was like, well, you know, I shouldn't have had that drink and then, you know, like maybe I should have not trusted this person who put something in my drink, you know. And it's like, well, at and and it's it's interesting now, like I have a bit of like a cognitive dissonance where as a sexual health educator, I'm like, absolutely, I know that that was not something that was my fault, but took me a long time individually to unpack my own feelings around that to say, oh, like, you know, I that that was a situation that I, you know, I didn't have control over my body, but that wasn't my fault in any way. And I think that is something that is so hard to kind of navigate that space and I think, you know, one of my my mentors um, in completing my sexual health educator training, she talks about how when, when someone has experienced trauma or has experienced um, assault, that it's in some ways they've had that their power taken from them. And that as supporters of, of survivors of that, it's trying to find ways to to get their power back. Does that feel like a – I have pros and cons on how I feel about that framing around it, but I wonder what your thoughts were on, on reclaiming power and how do you help people to do that? Yeah, so that is like fundamentally one of the key things that can really help. And so when you shared your story about, you know, I had this sense of self-blame, even if intellectually I was like nobody is at fault for someone – for the fact that somebody else put something in your drink, right? Like that's not your fault. For many people, shame will still make their brain 
basically do every logical leap it can to blame yourself, right? And that's because many of us have been raised in a culture of victim blaming. Now, after trauma, one of the things that research has shown us is that regaining a sense of autonomy and choice is something that can help you just feel much more confident in yourself and helps facilitate that recovery journey. So for me as an educator, that means providing people with options and saying, here's how you could move forward with these things. Do any of them feel like they're a good fit for you? What do you have more questions about? When it comes to clients that I'm working with who are very actively processing their trauma, and again, I'm I'm doing coaching and educational consultations. So I'm doing a lot of resource giving and certainly not therapy. Usually my clients are working with a therapist as well separately. But the thing that we'll do is say, let's make a list of some things that you can do in this type of situation, in this type of situation. And we'll literally just have those little moments of yeah, decision-making as someone who has experienced trauma can be really challenging because you might not trust yourself to make decisions. You might not feel like you have the power to make decisions because someone took your autonomy away from you. And so the simple act of saying you can choose the small thing helps give people that reassurance and that confidence to start moving forward with bigger decisions and regaining their autonomy in bigger, more meaningful ways. So that might mean that we think about like relaxation techniques, for example, we'll make a list of seven things that you can do that you know that you enjoy that help you relax and keep that list on your phone or keep it on a post-it on the fridge. And when you are feeling stressed, tense, like you need to decompress in some way, but you find yourself turning just to keep going with whatever you're doing, right? You're not actually listening to your brain telling you you need a break. Turn to the list and say, okay, here are my choices, which do I want to pick which feels the most right? And simply making that choice and having it laid out in front of you can rebuild that sense of safety, right? You can make decisions. You can advocate for your own needs. You can have control and autonomy over your life, even if somebody took that power away from you in the past, because someone taking that power away from you says nothing about who you are as a person. It says nothing about the things that you deserve as a person. And it says everything about that person who chose to take away your autonomy or who chose to push past your boundaries. Um, And it's something that pretty much every single survivor I work with has dealt with that, you know, internalized victim blaming, that struggle to find autonomy again. I certainly experienced it um, after I experienced sexual trauma. And for years, I didn't even name what happened to me as sexual assault because it didn't fit within at the time was the commonly represented media narrative of what sexual assault was. And so simply by, you know, creating the opportunities for more people to say, this thing happened to me and it was really hard and it wasn't okay. That lets all of us begin that healing journey and not get stuck in the post-traumatic habits that we might be building, that our trauma is telling us you have to do this thing in order to feel safe, even if it is not actually helping you in the long term. But choice is a huge part of that. And in a way where it sounds really trite or quaint to say it, really, that choice is is a big deal. The reality is that if someone has taken away power from you, whether it was from five minutes or for five years, 
it's incredibly difficult to convince your brain that you are allowed to self-advocate again. So a lot of the work that I do with survivors is rebuilding those self-advocacy skills and saying it's okay for you to say, I'm not interested in doing this. This is the thing that I want to do instead. And helping people redefine their boundaries and relearn about what their no signals are, what their yes signals are, because often a post-traumatic brain will have a really hard time processing through the differences between those. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that's immensely valuable, Cassandra, of just that framework. And I know what you mean, like sometimes when you when you're offering advice or some form of education around it, you don't want it to sound small in comparison to what people are experiencing. But that that actively making those choices and trusting yourself to do that is such a huge step in yeah, in, in reclaiming that power and autonomy. And the the one thing that made me think about that as well, and I've I've had folks ask me, um, especially some of, you know, some of my students and in doing this podcast about how how can you trust our bodies sometimes? Because sometimes if we have this some sort of traumatic experience, our bodies will react in a certain way and our brain didn't want it to do that. So that could be uh, through like vaginal lubrication or orgasm or other things that happen. And and I feel like for a lot of folks, it, it can create a real kind of um, – kind of like a like a mental crisis around how could my body react in that way? Does that mean I actually enjoyed it? And did my body betray me in these certain ways? Is that something that, that's come up in your work with survivors as well? So much, so much. One, when I teach about sex after trauma, one of the main topics that we talk about is the sense of bodily betrayal. Because if somebody got an erection, if somebody got wet, if somebody even had an orgasm, they might feel like, okay, maybe I actually enjoyed this thing. And we'll often then fall into the cycle of saying like, because you had this reaction, it couldn't have been this. And the way that I talk about that is that our physiological responses are actually just physiological responses to stimulation. And we can absolutely get erections, get wet, have orgasms in situations that we are not enjoying. And it's happening simply because nerves are being stimulated in a certain way. Um, And also, when people feel really afraid, their bodies can do that same tightening of muscles, right? The like clenching to prepare to run, to prepare to flee. And that can actually lead people to experiencing things like, like feeling like they're leading up to an orgasm or even having an orgasm. And that's simply because their muscles are locked down and their bodies might then start to respond in that way. When we talk about now making peace with that and understanding that the thing that your body did does not override what was happening in your brain. Understanding that your body isn't the thing that's giving consent. It is always you, the person, not you, the body. They're two different things. They just happen to cohabitate. That makes it a lot easier for people to then say, okay, this thing wasn't my fault. I'm not losing my mind for having this experience. And also now comes the really challenging work of some people will have really strong post-traumatic associations of getting wet equals 
trauma threat happening, sexual violence threat happening. Um, And that's especially true for people who were in ongoing abusive situations, where any type of sexual context has now been coded as potentially violent in their brain. And so the hard work that we have to do is recoding experiences and self-touch is really key there. So many survivors struggle with being able to like have skin on skin contact even for themselves. And so one of the things that I recommend is find a part of your body that feels as neutral as you can, right? So that might be your arms, for example. It could be your feet, whatever. Touch that part of your body yourself, you can be the person to say, okay, now I'm going to touch this different part. Now I'm going to put pressure in this way. Now I'm going to lightly run my fingertips in this way. Now I'm going to stop. Okay, now I'm going to start again. And by teaching your brain like, hey, I have control over my body. I have control over the types of touch. I get to decide what part of my body gets engaged with. We can retrain our brain that touch can be safe and pleasurable, especially when we're not saying, you know, I'm, what I'm not saying is to tickle yourself and to just keep going with it. Absolutely not, right? Like do a thing that actually feels good for you that you enjoy the physical sensation of. From there, we might move towards increasingly sensual experiences that lead to solo sexual touch. Um, and again, we've got total control over what we do. So some people might like to use toys here, especially if the idea of like hand to genital contact feels like too much. Um, but other people might not want toys because they feel less in control of them. So it's ultimately just about learning about what you need in that context, right? But set a timer and touch your body for 90 seconds. At the end of that timer, say, I'm done. That's all that I'm going to do for now. That's my skin practice for now. And if you want to keep going, add two minutes to the timer, you know, extend it little by little so that you have this sort of easy out and intentional check-in point and make those really small, short periods, which is why I say, you know, start with 90 seconds, start with two minutes, because you're probably not going to be exclusively stimulating your genitals for those two minutes. And of course, if before the timer goes off, you're like, I can't do this. It's too much. You're in control, not the timer. So you get to say when to stop. And so rebuilding that sense of trust in the body and that the body can be cared for, the body can have pleasurable experiences. We are here in our bodies and sometimes our bodies have reactions that we don't want them to, right? Sometimes people fart when they don't want them to. And, you know, it's it's kind of the same thing when it comes to lubrication and ejaculation and orgasm and erections. It's an uncontrollable bodily response happening in reaction to something else, right? And so like treat it kind of in that way, right? Like we might be embarrassed if we burp in the middle of giving a public speech, but it's happening because there's gas being produced in our body and it needs to go somewhere. And uh, and when we talk about the physiological experiences that happen with sexual stimulation, we're, we're talking really about the same thing. And you have no fault in that. It doesn't say anything about how you enjoyed an experience. It's simply your body reacting. So let's retrain, rebuild to rebuild that sense of trust with ourselves and with our bodies. That's such practical advice too, and something that is is echoed in in the video that you that you have as well of like how do you start with things that are manageable and again reinforcing that you are in control. That's always you are safe, you are in control, and you get to make those choices for yourself. I I wonder too, kind of maybe like the last aspect we'll we'll touch on today is 
um, a lot of folks asking about partnered sex after trauma and, and what is that going to look like? And so, yeah, any thoughts about that? I mean, assuming that again, it's probably much easier to start with that own like self touch and pleasure and making sure that like you as your own autonomous sexual being have that control and power again before engaging in some sort of like partnered sex. So what are maybe some, I'm so hard to say like practical advice, but some steps if you were to work through um, someone who you're coaching, what, what would that look like? So one of the things that I always think about if somebody is looking to start engaging with partnered sex again after trauma is what type of trust exists between you and that partner or you and those partners. What I don't recommend, and this gets really complicated because when I'm coaching people, it's not typically immediately after they've experienced a trauma. It's usually years after they've been doing things for a while and it, it hasn't been working. And so now they're looking to try to retrain some of those experiences. And so some people will experience this thing after trauma where they feel like because somebody has overstepped or overlooked Uh, their boundaries, that somebody has violated them in the past, that there's basically no point in them having a boundary. And so they'll just engage with anybody, right? That's one side of this. On the other side, we have sexual aversion, which is when we're going to see people building up really high and thick boundaries and saying nothing good ever happens in sexual context. So it's just me on my own and I can't let anybody else in. And people can fall, you know, in between those two things. They can kind of flip around in those two things, depending on how long it's been from an experience. So you're not, you know, required to have one of those two experiences. But those are the two big buckets that we tend to see people falling into. And uh, when people are in that first bucket, they might be more likely to have things like one night stands or do things that they maybe wouldn't necessarily have done prior to the trauma because in a way we're trying to regain control of our body by uh, rewriting the script basically of what's happened to us, right? We say, I can have these safe experiences even if they're not necessarily something you would have wanted to have in the past. I don't particularly recommend doing that. And also I did that. That was my way of coping with trauma for a very long time. And so I recognize that one of the key factors there is engaging in harm reduction, right? How can we keep people as safe as possible while doing the things that might feel a little bit out of control in their brain? Now, if we're talking about someone who is, you know, in some type of partnered situation and they're wanting to rebuild sex in that capacity, We're talking about radical patience, really. And what I often will will see with survivors is people saying, like, all of the burden of communication is on me because I'm the one with the problem. And it's like, "Mm, no, actually. (laughs) I and I totally get why people feel that way, because it's like, well, I'm the one with the higher level of need here. And that might be true, but communication is a constant in any type of healthy sexual relationship. You're going to be talking about boundaries and desires in any context, even if the people involved haven't experienced trauma at all, or you should be talking about those things at the very uh, minimum. So it's not just on you. It's not just a you problem. You're not being inconvenient for talking about boundaries. You're being a good sexual partner and a responsive sexual partner who's supportive and healthy will then say, I might not understand the reasons why you need X, Y, or Z, but I'm here to help you meet those needs. And 
that can be a really challenging conversation for survivors. One, because we might not know what our triggers are until we meet the trigger, until it's actually started. Two, we might feel like I just have to keep powering through this and and moving through this situation until everything like gets easier and better. The reality is that, yeah, we can't predict what all of our triggers will be. But when we meet them, do we feel comfortable slowing down and letting our nervous system soothe? We might use grounding techniques for that. We might switch positions. We might have our partners talk with us. We might even do things like play games on our phone, like that kind of mindless activity that can reset you can be really helpful there. The flip side of that, when we think about just having to power through something, is saying radical patience does not say power through. Radical patience says take the time you need to find pleasure and experience pleasure and uh, retraining our brains that like, hey, you don't have to be in whatever place you were pre-traumatic incident. You don't have to be in that place right now. And in fact, you don't have to be in that place ever. Who you are now is worth getting to know, is worth supporting, and is worth saying, hey, your pleasure, your desires, your boundaries are worthwhile too. I'm going to get to know you today as you are because your desires and boundaries will shift throughout the lifespan. That is completely normal. And so reassure yourself of that as much as you need to, to give yourself patience for those experiences. Now, if you're the supportive partner in this situation, then like managing the face is really, really important. So Our partners might share something with us that makes us angry, that makes us sad, that makes us scared, that makes us worried, that we simply don't know how to handle. And all of those emotions show up on our faces pretty clearly. And so I am really a big fan of taking a breath and acknowledging, like, I'm having an emotional reaction to that thing you just shared. I need you to know it's not that I am, insert feeling here, at you. It's me just having a gut reaction. I want to know how to best support you in this thing that you just shared with me. And I really appreciate that you trusted me enough to share that information. Because that thank you and saying like, hey, it was okay to talk to me about this, even if I'm having a struggle is really helpful, really important. And just recognizing like there is no value in saying, well, my last partner experienced trauma and they didn't have this problem that doesn't matter. Your last partner was your last partner. Your current partner is your current partner. And uh, everybody is going to process those things in different ways. And so really think about what that person needs and the types of support that you realistically can offer, because you're not going to be able to offer every type of support. And that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. But think about what your strengths are and in what areas you need more support. But turning back towards Again, that patience, that saying I can slow down or stop whenever I need to. And also using tools like yes, no, maybe surveys can be incredibly helpful here because many survivors might enter into conversations about sex and just kind of freeze and be like, I don't know how to advocate for my boundaries or it feels like everything is off the table. And using a yes, no, maybe survey basically gives you that list to be able to make choices from much more easily. And I I always advocate for using those as tools, whether people have experienced trauma or not, because they help facilitate and jumpstart a conversation in a way that can feel more fun, playful, and structured than many of us have ever been taught to. So there's so many different components to this, but fundamentally it comes down to patience, communication, and utilizing the tools that are available to you. And 
simply remembering you don't have to be in the place you were pre-trauma. You're going to be in a new place. That place is going to keep changing and keep growing. And it's okay to follow that path and see where you'll grow from there. Hmm. Yeah, I, I really love that, that affirmation of, again, it's not trying to like get back to the life or person or experiences that I had before, but really honoring and having that patience with, with where you're at now. It's, um, yeah, I think that, that radical patience is definitely a big part of it. And it's making me think a few, a few weeks ago on the podcast, I had Dr. Lori Brado, uh, and she talks a lot about mindfulness in sex and a lot of it in terms of low desire, but I think mindfulness and being present no matter who we are experiencing trauma or not, are we supporters of partners who have trauma or friends? It's all something, you know, being mindful, being present and present of uh, understanding the emotions that might be crossing our faces, but then also that, you know, that patience, like how, how much more honest and pleasurable would all of our relationships and experiences be if that was kind of the, the foundation that we were building from? Yeah, absolutely. And that's why I say, you know, this isn't something that's unique to survivors. It's something that we would all benefit from radical patience, from compassion, from curiosity, regardless of trauma that has happened. It's just something that helps improve our communication, our relationships, and help us access pleasure in a deeper, more meaningful way. The other side of this is like, we don't have to do it all ourselves. We don't have to know everything ourselves. There is so much value in community and finding those supportive resources. And so as we look towards rebuilding a healthy relationship with sex again, whether we are the person who's experienced trauma or we are the supportive partner or we're the supportive partner who has also experienced our own trauma, figuring out what our resource bank looks like and saying, okay, I know that I can go to this support group. I know that I can go to this online forum. I know that this person's internet content is really helpful for me. I know that I have this friend who's down to talk about these things. I can journal, I can exercise, I can just take a bath and reconnect with my body in that way. We should all know what our personal grounding techniques are that help us be more compassionate with ourselves and also what the techniques are that help our partners ground themselves um, because we can be you know, shared contributors to that experience. And so, you know, it isn't just an it's on us situation. It's very much a a community powered and figuring out what can we give and what are we asking for to help support us. That's excellent. Thank you so much for for your time and for for your expertise in all of this. It's just been so uh I'm sure uh, for people who are only listening, Cassandra's been watching my face go through all sorts of <laughs> different <laughs> emotions as I'm kind of processing myself. But I think the main thing that I, I really want to leave people with is that I always make sure there are lots of resources at the end of every episode, either in the episode description or on my website. And I'll also have link to your Instagram and your website because you have so many amazing resources there about what we've talked about today, but about so many other things in terms of sexual health and relationships. So I just so appreciate your time and thank you so much for agreeing to chat with me today. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me for this really important and honestly challenging conversation, but it's one that I think we all would benefit from having. So thanks. Thank you so much for joining me today on the Love Doctor podcast. I hope you take the time today to look after yourself and know that there is support for you if you need it. 
I have a list of resources in the episode description, or you can see all of the resources that I share on this podcast on my website at www.leatidy.com. And if you have a question for the show, send me a voice memo to thelovedoctorpodcast at gmail.com. Or you can send a voice message to me on Instagram at dr.leatidy. And even if you don't send in a question, you can check me out on Instagram or Twitter. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review, share it with your friends, and let me know what you thought of this episode. Until then, folks, stay healthy, stay safe, stay consensual.